Amen. So just a little review, a historical review. This, we are in the 700s B.C., the 700s B.C., and Isaiah is the voice of God. He is the prophet of God, and he is speaking to the people of, of Israel and Judah. When we come to this particular chapter, the prophecy is primarily for Judah um, because the northern kingdom has already come under the domination of the Assyrian Empire. And Judah has a main, the main problem that Judah, and remember Judah is in the southern kingdom, the southern part of Israel, and it, it is comprised of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and the capital city of Jerusalem. And their main sin, if you'll remember, it's been coming up throughout the whole time, is they, they're trusting in Egypt. They're trusting in their political alliance with Egypt, which is always a, a dangerous thing to do, to trust in governments, to trust in, the, in man. And uh, Egypt, of course, does not love the Lord, but they believe perhaps with the power of Egypt, they can hold off the power of Assyria. And so they make an alliance with Egypt. It is a sin. It is a, a sin that Isaiah told them not to do. And because they are allied with Egypt, they think that they now have enough strength and enough power to throw off the Assyrian um, domination of the region. And so they stop paying tribute to Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians. They stop paying tribute. They rebel against his lordship, his overlordship of the area, and they believe Egypt is going to save them. And so Sennacherib um, brings the Assyrian armies, sort of they're coming from the northeast into Israel, <clears throat> and he essentially wipes out everything. He comes through, the Bible says that his armies come through like a fire through a, a patch of thorns, and he's just burning up everything. All the apple trees, all the pomegranate trees, everything is shaken bare. That's a metaphor in the scriptures. And uh, the trees of Lebanon are burned to the ground. That's another metaphor. He's coming through, and he is, he is um, decimating everything, enslaving, enslaving everyone. And this chapter is probably, we can't be dogmatic, but this chapter is probably a prophecy of Isaiah to Jerusalem and King Hezekiah um, after Sennacherib has already surrounded them and wiped everyone else out. So it's Hezekiah in the capital city of Jerusalem, and they are surrounded by Syrian forces, and everyone else has been enslaved and dispersed, and there's been massive pillage and plunder. And if you, uh, when you, if you get a chance, you can do it tonight if you get bored. You can Google Sennacherib and, uh, the, and Lachish, L-I-C-H-I-S-H. And there you can see the, uh, the battles um, carved on stone tablets. Archaeologists have found the, uh, the stone uh, engravings of King Sennacherib on his, on his throne receiving tribute from all the tribes and the leaders of Lachish, which was a major city outside of Jerusalem, on pikes and people, women and children being carried off in slavery. You can see the, the, um, the drawings um, on this particular uh, tablet. And the, and the writing on the tablet says basically Sennacherib, king of kings, lord of lords. And it tells the story um, of him receiving tribute and of Hezekiah's rebellion and the fact that he is going there to destroy them. And it says in the, uh, in the reliefs, the stone reliefs, it says that Hezekiah is trapped like a bird in a cage. That's what Sennacherib says about Hezekiah. That King Hezekiah and Jerusalem are like a bird in a cage, and he has got them surrounded, and there's nowhere for them to go. And uh, that's sort of the setting of this particular chapter. 
And so the word of Isaiah comes, and the first word is from God to Assyria, to Sennacherib. And it starts in, uh, in verse 1. So we can start there, 33, verse 1. It says, ah, you destroyer. Now, he's, he's talking to Assyria. Y'all found it, 33, verse 1? He's talking to the Assyrians and to King Sennacherib. Ah, you destroyer. This can be translated robber or oppressor or tyrant. Who yourself have not been destroyed. Right? You traitor. So he calls him a covenant breaker. Now, this is true because Sennacherib had made an alliance with Judah way back in, I think it was in chapter 10. Judah had, had made a, an alliance with Assyria for other political purposes. They weren't supposed to do that either. They keep trusting in the Republican or Democrat Party. That's the problem. They keep trusting in politics. They keep trusting in the power of the state. They keep trusting in man to save them instead of doing what? Which would be manifest by in repenting and obeying his law. So instead of repenting and obeying his law, they keep making political alliances. And they had already made an alliance with Assyria. Sennacherib broke that. He's a covenant breaker. He's a traitor. So God points him out. He said, you tyrant, you oppressor, you covenant breaker, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. So no one's destroyed you. No one's betrayed you. Then it makes the prophecy to Assyria. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. This is basically your time is coming. Your time is coming. And of course, we know in history, the Babylonians uh, destroy the uh, Assyrian Empire. Then the Babylonians get what's coming to them with the Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, then the barbarian hordes, right? And this is true for all nations even today. If America is a destroyer, which we are, um, our, our nation is oppressive, not only of babies, you know, infants in the womb, but of its own citizens with heavy taxation, with murder, with uh, unlawful um, you know, surveillance, with unjust persecution and prosecution of good people, just people, of rigging elections, all of those things. Our government is corrupt. Not only do they oppress their own people, but our government oppresses people all around the world, right? They send money to evil people that use it in evil ways. And, and the money they send is, is your kids' money and your grandkids' money. They're evil. They're destroyers. And they're also covenant breakers. That's what makes it so hard to, sw to swear allegiance to the flag as a symbol of our nation and our covenant as a nation because we know that the regime has already broken anything that that covenant could possibly represent. And so, you know, when, when the husband or the wife, the opposite side of the party, is cheating on you, completely and treating you like garbage you know it's hard to swear your allegiance right there needs to be some repentance there needs to be some repentance or else there's enmity in the relationship and a covenant lawsuit has to be filed and um, and that's exactly what Isaiah's do Isaiah is filing a covenant lawsuit against Assyria because all nations are in covenant with God not just Israel so um, what this particular there's a few lessons here but what this particular prophecy has underneath it is what we call lex talionis lex talionis it's a principle of how god governs the world does anyone know what lex talionis means literally in english it means law of the talon or law of the tooth 
That's what it means. It's the lex talionis, law of the tooth. And it simply is the, that you reap what you sow. Or as the, um, the great theologian Tom Petty says, right? What's his song? Don't do me like that. That's his song. It's a great song. Don't do me like that. Someday somebody's going to uh, turn around. Somebody's going to, what does he say? Somebody, somebody's going to treat you like that. Somebody's going to break your heart. Someone's going to, what you do, what goes around comes around sort of thing. That's Lenny Kravitz, a different philosopher. But the, the Bible says that you reap what you sow, lex talionis. And the government is supposed to be a minister of God for vengeance and justice and is supposed to administer justice when you violate the law, God's law, not man's law then the government is supposed to execute justice. Law, uh, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. And the, and the punishment is supposed to fit the crime. Right? And remember, as a parent, you are, um, you are the judge of your family, um, and you are to administer justice, and it is to be lex talionis. It is to be eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It, the punishment should fit the crime. If, if your kid um, you know, commits a particular sin against God, the punishment should not be exaggerated and, and blown up in your anger and your wrath. It should, it should, be, it should be balanced, right? Um, of course, like God, we don't always give what, what they deserve uh, because we're not just ministers of justice, we're ministers of mercy as well, right? And so um, the Assyrians are going to get what they have given. That's what's going to happen. And, uh, and that's what happens in our life as well. That's how God governs the world to some uh, generally speaking. And so I think this is a good lesson for us individually. Jesus says, um, judge not lest you be judged. That's what he says. For with what measure you judge others, that will be measured against you. You know, you understand what that means? So if someone has committed a sin that you know about and you are talking about it privately, to other people, and you're like, I just can't believe it. That beep, and you know, I I would never do something like that. You know, there. I hope God just really. I hope they. I hope they lose all their friends. I hope they lose all their money. And you really just go hard on them, right? Um, and of course, you're more prone to do that if they sin against you. Just remember, when you're going hard on somebody, and you're being, and you're not cutting slack. And you're wanting the law to, you know, the sword of Damocles to come and chop their head off. Just remember, that's coming back at you. That's coming back at you. So um, when you're dealing with people who have sinned against others or against you, you don't want to be a hard A. You want to be gracious and merciful and cut people slack. Amen? If that's what you want people to do for you, right? All right. Remember that if you're if you're playing on a team with a, with another group of people and they mess up on the team and they miss the shot, you go after them. It's just a matter of time before someone treats you that way. And if everyone starts doing that, you create a culture of judgmentalism and a lack of mercy, and it's just not pleasant and happy. Right. All right. Good. That's uh, Lex Talionis. Don't do me like that, Tom Petty says. Um, and another lesson that's important here is uh, what's called delayed sanctions, right? Tooth for tooth is how God governs the world. Eye for eye is how God governs the world. Um, but he doesn't do it immediately. There's always a delayed response, right? You reap in one season 
You, you sow in one season, but you reap in another season. And so there's a delayed response, a delayed um, way in which God administrates his blessings and curses. And so you could think of it as every action that you have, every seed you sow, every word you say, every action, it has an echo. And the echo comes back at you eventually. You know, and God determines how, how wide the canyon, is, the canyon is or when the echo comes back at you. And um, that delay makes evil people think what? They think they're winning. That's right. They think they're winning. The, the delay convinces them in their own mind that there is no God, that there is no higher justice. And that's what evil tyrants do. That's what Assyria is doing. Oh, look at us. We're, we're winning. We are, we are oppressing everyone. Our gods have won the day. Your gods aren't strong. Your gods aren't going to administrate justice. And that's what he's going to say to Hezekiah in just a few chapters. He's going to say, your God can't beat our gods. Look, look, we're right here. We're winning. And that delay convinces evil people there's no God. There's no actions. There's no consequences. That history is not governed by cause and effect. But history is just random. Right? But we know history is governed by a God who's personal. And there is cause and effect. And what you sow, you will reap with a delay. And that, that goes for good deeds and, and good thoughts and good uh, words as well, right? What else does a delay cause? Doubt in the righteous. That's right, doubt in Christians. Because the wicked are prevailing for a season, you might doubt that God cares. Or you might doubt that God, maybe he's not powerful enough. Or maybe perhaps he doesn't love you because he's not answering your prayers right away. Right? And, and not only is there a delay in his curses, there's also a delay in his blessings. So that when he promises you something, the fulfillment of that promise, there's always a delay. And you pray and you wait and you make good arguments with him. That's one way you should pray, making good biblical arguments about why he should give that to you. Right? He, li- he likes you to wrestle with him. The Bible's clear about that. Say, well, you know, uh, this would be good and this could happen and look at all this. Make good biblical arguments. And you promise this right here. And, and honestly, there's a lot of people I know, they think that you don't have good promises because of the way I'm getting, uh, because of the way this is happening to me. So I think there's all over the Bible, you have people giving God good r- rational arguments based on his promises. And, and that's just called a, claiming the promises, or appealing to the covenantal promises, right? And Moses does that when God set, threatens to, uh, to kill all of Israel, and, and several people do. And one of, the, one of the funniest ones is they're like, God, what, you know, what are people going to think? <laughs> like, you've said that the, we are your people and that you're going to save us, and if you kill all of us, what are people going to think? <laughs> so... Uh, and Joshua actually does that after they lose at AI. And a lot of commentators say it's not genuine. Because Joshua's like, we just lost at AI. Well, what are people going to think? And in that case, I think God's like, look, that's not ultimately what I care about. Right? I don't actually care about what people think. I don't mind making you lose for a little while if you need to get disciplined. And so there's a lot of that back and forth in the Bible. So just remember, delayed sanctions, delayed blessings, delayed cursings. The kids that you're having and the difficulties that you have with the kids, the blessings, the ultimate blessings, are going to come back to you, but there's going to be a delayed rebound, right? Amen. Did you say tell me about it? Yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more. 
right? <laughs> There's going to be a delayed rebound. That's right. But or if you're being slothful with your homework assignments, um, and, uh, and there's going to be a delayed response, right? If, if you're not practicing, you know, uh, and then like five or six years go down, and you're like, all your friends, they can, they can do these things. Why can't I do it? And we're like, oh, yeah, I didn't practice. You know, I didn't put in the time. There's a delayed response. Not that that applies to anyone. All right. All right. And then one third lesson. A theological lesson is that God, what do we call God's rule and governance over, over history? What do we call that? Starts with a P. That's right. Providence. That's right. Providence. And you can see that with the Assyrians. You can see that the king is doing what God wants him to do. He's disciplining his people, as we've been talking about for many chapters. But then when they're done, someone's going to punish them. It's all being, it's all planned by God. It's all orchestrated by God, right? And we call that providence. Now, uh, there's some major mistakes you can make with that. And that is to think that God is, that he created the world and he's completely distant. And he has sort of abandoned it. And it just, everybody just does what they want and it runs on free will. Right? What do, we, what do you call that? Deism. Right. The other uh, mistake is to think that God is completely one with us. And that everything is God and all is one. And we don't actually have real choices or our prayers don't, aren't really prayers. And even our, everything good and bad is an illusion. All is actually one. And what, what is that called? Pantheism, right? Or Star Wars. <coughs> or Zoroastrianism, right? And that there's a Ahura and a Mazda that, that is like dueling, but there's no other God. So one mistake is to think God is totally away. And another mistake is to think that God is one. But the Bible teaches that God is separate, but that he is hands-on involved in everything. So if you wanted to use your brain, which one of those would you be able to figure out by looking at the world? (coughs) If you want to use your brain rationalistically and try to figure out how this universe works, you could come up with deism. I mean, look at the world around here. People just doing whatever they want. You know, things happening. But obviously, there had to have been something that caused all of this. So there must be a God, but he is aloof, he's distant, he's not involved. Okay, that solves the problem of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and why there's evil in the world. Or you could be like, well, there, there must not be a holy other God, good and evil and bad and, and the things that happen. It, all, it must just be the way it is. Right? It just must be what's natural. There's a Jedi, and there's Darth Vader, and that's just how it is. You know, you could come up with these things, and they, people have come up with these things. But the Bible tells you that it's neither of those two, that God is involved with every single event. There is not a single molecule that moves or a second that ticks off on the clock that God isn't causing and heavily involved with. And every single second and every single event is moving forward toward his toward accomplishing his purposes and his plans. We all, know, we all know this. We talk about this a lot. I'm reviewing for various reasons. All right? Now, that would cause you to think, um, well, if God is doing it, then how can man be responsible, right? Is Sennacherib responsible for his evil? Yes. Is God causing and leading him to do it? Yes. How can both of those things be true? Who are you, O oh man, to question God? Very good. That's right. We don't know. We don't know. But the Bible teaches that God 
causes everything and that man causes things. That God determines and man determines. Did Sennacherib choose to invade Israel? Yes. Did God choose for Sennacherib to invade Israel? Yes. Did God cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? But did gravity and condensation also play, cause it? Yes. How can they both be true? We don't know. And you're not, if you use your human brain, which all religions do, all religions originate from man and their brain cells, whether it be um, Hinduism or Greek, um, classical Greek thought, comes from humans' brains, and you, can, you could come up with everything is caused by God, and we are just robots. We are just actors on the stage playing our part. We don't actually make real choices. Our prayers don't really matter. And what do we call that in English? The matrix, yeah. It's, a, it's just fate, right? It's just fate. Fate, you know, fate is inexorable. And uh, that's just the way it is. You could come up with that. And that would be convenient because it could actually justify a lot of sinful behavior too. And like, you, know, you know, I can't help falling in love with you, right? It's just fate, right? <clears throat> that's for Americans because love is the fate god in Disney. But then you could also think as a, as a rationalist, you could say, well, no, God doesn't cause everything. You know, man with his autonomous free will chooses everything. Or maybe man is powerless and, and our choices can't quite determine the future. And so we're all just kind of caught up in randomness or chance. You could come up with that. Man and all of his, all of his decisions down here, all six billion of us making decisions, just causes history to go in sort of a random direction. Or God controls everything. But the Bible teaches what's called concurrence. If you like uh, theology terms, I know Ms. Paul likes to write the theology terms. Concurrence is that God causes all things and man causes the things within his limited sphere as well. That's called concurrence. And, um, and that's taking place in all of the book of Isaiah. We see that. Right? Listen to what Job 37, 6 says. Job says, to the snow, God says, fall on the earth. So God's like, snow, fall on the earth. He causes it. He orders it. It's a part of his plan. But I thought there was natural factors that cause it. Even scientists have discovered the natural factors that cause it. Yep, that's true too. Concurrence. There's primary causes and secondary causes. And uh, Psalm 104, 14, you cause the grass to grow. But I thought photosynthesis, right? All of that. Yes, all of that. Amen? All right. I think that's important to, uh, to understand. Um, and Sennacherib is making a clear choice to invade Israel. Is he an evil person? Yeah. Is he choosing to do evil? Yes. Is God using him? Is God ordaining all of this? Yes. Is Sennacherib going to be punished for his sins? He is responsible. Absolutely. God is so um, wise and all-knowing that he uses evil men and their evil actions to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. He does not sin, they sin, and then they are punished for their sinning. How can that be? How can that be? I don't know. Christianity wasn't invented in a human's mind, right? The other religions were. Christianity has a lot of things that can't, in our minds rationally be true at the same time but it's what the bible 
teaches about how the universe works. And I mean, it makes sense if God gave us a book that it would be above our rational capabilities, don't you think? I would think so. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to verse 10. <coughs> Isaiah 33:10. I'm trying to get through the whole chapter without bogging down. Now God is going to speak to Hezekiah and to Jerusalem. And um, he has spoken to Assyria. Now he's going to speak to his people in Jerusalem. And remember, guys, Jerusalem is a type of the church. And Hezekiah is a type of Christ. And so everything you read in this chapter, they read for, them, for themselves in that moment. But we read it for them in that moment, but also for us in our moment, and also for the world in the, in the cosmic moment of Jesus coming, right? All right, verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. All right, there you go. God gives a timestamp. Isaiah saying, hey, Jerusalem, you're surrounded. All the cities have been burnt down and everyone's been enslaved. And all the leaders have been put on pikes. And uh, catapults and earth ramps and battering rams have tore down the walls of every city in the whole region. And you see all the armies out there. And everyone's weeping and wailing and and tearing their clothes. And the Assyrian ambassadors are there at Jerusalem um, threatening and mocking and making fun. And Isaiah says, okay, now I will arise. Now's the time. Now's the time. I I just, that's how God works, isn't it? Especially if you're needing to be disciplined, right? He's going to bring you to repentance eventually, even with discipline. But oftentimes we pray and we're waiting on the Lord. And it just seems to take forever. And then when we least expect it, now I will arise. Now I will surprise you. But, but Hezekiah has to hear this word from Isaiah, and he has to make a decision. And what, do you, what is the decision? He has to believe this word. In chapter 36, if we have time, we might get to it. The, the ambassadors of Sennacherib are at Jerusalem, and they're telling uh, Hezekiah's court and the envoys, you can surrender, and we are going to take care of you. If you surrender to us, we will give you horses. Uh, we will let you uh, drink wine and have your vineyards. Things are going to be great. Now, now, eventually, we're going to deport you to another region. That's our policy. But you're at least going to be alive. We're going to load up those trains, those train cars over there. We're going to send you off to a wonderful place. It's going to be fine. Um, just why would you fight us? Look at all the other cities. They're all in ruins. Obviously, your God doesn't really care about you this much, or at least he wants you to be defeated. So wouldn't it make sense for you to trust us and surrender and give up? And then, of course, what Hezekiah sees with his eyes looks like he should give up. He should stop waiting. He should take the easy way out. He should sin and compromise, right? That's what we're tempted to do with the delay in between the echo of a promise and the fulfillment of that promise. We're tempted to sin. And so Isaiah is saying, no, 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 God just said, God's telling you right now, now's the time, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Go on, right here in the verse, verse 10, now, is, now I will arise, says the Lord, now I will lift myself up, now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. <clears throat> Amen. Move down to verse 14. He's going to turn the Assyrian army into stubble, is what he's saying there. Move down to 14. You might say, okay, well, 
what's going to happen to us? What about all the people who hang on, hang on and keep following you? Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. <coughs> Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So the sinners in Zion, that's Jerusalem, they, they're in trouble. They know that things are going to be bad. And, and everyone cries out, who can, if God is going to judge us, how can we live in the midst of this consuming fire? How can we dwell in God's judgment? Um, how can we possibly make it through all of this? Verse 15, Isaiah tells them who can make it through God's judgment. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. So that's who, can, who God is going to bless, right? And that's who God is going to preserve. Does that, and does that describe you? It should. If you're a Christian, this should describe you. You should be walking righteously. Not perfect. The Bible doesn't teach perfection. But you should be obeying his laws, right? In actions and in speaking. You shouldn't be wanting the gain of oppression. You shouldn't be trying to take advantage of people and, and get... Uh, Get easy money, right? And you, if someone tries to give you a bribe, if someone tries to compromise you, you should shake your, like, let it out of your hand. No, no, I don't take bribes. Oh, uh, if your business partner wants to do some shady stuff, I don't care. If your boss is like, hey, I'll give you a promotion if you go along with this, no, I don't take bribes. I'm a Christian. Those are the people he's describing, the righteous. Those are the people who can, um, what was the phrase? Dwell with the consuming fire. And uh, dwell means <coughs> you're like a sojourner and you need a tent to stay in and, um, and God's tent is on high and he says, you can stay in my tent um, if this is characteristic of you. And so that's, you know, consuming fire, dwelling with a consuming fire. Um, you can only do that if you are a Christian, basically, if you're righteous before the Lord. And, of course, anybody who does any of these things, by the way, guys, it's only by God's grace, right? And then verse 16, that's the person who will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. So you will be in God's castle. Too high for Sennacherib and his armies to get you. Too high for your enemies to get you. Whatever is threatening you and whatever is making you afraid to follow Jesus, um, God says if you will trust him, he will, he will change your life, and he will take, take care of you. You will dwell in his tent on high, like in a giant castle, and his place of defense will be the fortresses of the rocks. It'll be an impenetrable castle. No one can touch you. Amen? No one can touch you as a Christian. Um, they might, even if they were to kill you, the worst they can do is introduce you to heaven. The worst they can do. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. You'll have everything you need. In verse 17, your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. You will, you will know Christ. You will have a relationship with him. You will see him <coughs> with your eyes, which is a Hebrew metaphor for intimate relationship with him and, and knowing him. When you go to heaven, you will see him face to face and for all eternity. But right now we see him with the eyes of faith. And you will understand what he's doing and you will have a relationship with him. And not only will you see the king, but look right here. You will also see a land that stretches afar. You will see the king's kingdom, and you will see that it is ultimately going to cover the entire earth. You will have hope. You will have a mission. You will have a vision in life. You will have all of these things if you walk with the Lord. You need not fear. 
Amen? All right. <clears throat> Verse 18. Y'all hanging with me? Y'all ready? Y'all done? We good? All right, this is good. Verse 18. Your heart will muse on the terror. That means you'll be laying in bed at night, and you'll be thinking about all of the horrible things that once were, and the fear, and the terror, and the fright from your enemies, and those people who threaten you if you follow Jesus. You'll be um, laying in your bed at night thinking about that, and not only you, but your children and your grandchildren. And then you will, you will say to yourself, verse 18, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? That's where Sennacherib and his armies and all their heavy taxation and their stealing from me. Where, you know, where'd they go? That'll be cool to live in, in the world one day, in America one day, right? And, and your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren, how long, however long it takes, your great-grandchildren will be like, I remember old grandpa used to say that no matter how much he worked, he never had enough money because the IRS kept taking 50% of his income. Right? And I remember they locked Christians up for this and locked Christians up for that and threatened them if they said anything on social media or hanged them in the public square. I remember those days. But where'd those guys go? Where'd those guys go? It's going to be like that one day. Where is he who counted the towers? That's uh, armies outside looking at your uh, towers and preparing their siege weapons. Where'd those guys go? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech. That's the Assyrians, the enemies of God that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. So you can see how this works for Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He's saying, look, you're going to see the king, and, and it's, it's Hezekiah following Jesus, but it points to Jesus Christ. And you're going to see that his empire is going to expand. Y'all are going to win. Y'all are going to win. And, of course, we know it points to Jesus Christ. You'll see all those different things. And one day, um, y'all are going to be like, where'd those Assyrians go? So you can see how Isaiah is trying to encourage them, don't surrender. Don't surrender. God is going to give you victory. All right? Um, let's go to, see if we have enough time for that. Let's go to uh, Isaiah. Mm, let's go to 23, chapter 33, verse 23. He says one last thing to, uh, to, to the people of of uh, Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. He says, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. So that's uh, a shipping thing. He's basically saying, your boat is uh, stuck in the doldrums. You can't lift the sail. You're a sitting duck. They're kind of a sitting duck, aren't they? Right in the middle, behind their city walls. He's going to, um, he, and you're going to see in a second, he's going to threaten them with, the fact that they're going to be drinking their urine and eating their babies. He's going to put seeds to them. They're going to starve to death, and he's going to murder all of them if they don't surrender. And God says, you're a ship out in the middle of the sea, and you can't even lift the, the sail. You're a sitting duck. That's what he says. Then, but then, then what happens? Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. But then you're going to win, and you're going to divide all the spoil. And I'm, I'll give you a spoiler alert. When God does defeat the Assyrian armies, they, the Israelites do literally, where'd they go? And they go out there and they take all their, their stuff that's just sitting in the, in the camp. It's, pretty, it's a cool story. I'm, looking, I'm finally looking forward to some historical narratives in Isaiah because this judgment every single week is, is, is starting to wear on me. All right. 
<laughs> even the lame will take the prey. It's like even like lame, handicapped people are going to be like winning. Right? <laughs> They're going to be warriors. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So you can see there's going to be victory in Zion. That points to Hezekiah's day, but obviously it points to the victory we can experience in Christ in the true heavenly Zion, right? All right, well, let's get, go to chapter 36, the fun stuff. I just I had to just go there. <clears throat> and we just have 13 minutes left, so we'll, I don't know how far we'll get. But we'll start in verse 1. Now, that was the prophecy. Everyone's in Jerusalem. Sennacherib has wiped out everything. Um, Hezekiah has a big decision to make. He's, he's already screwed up uh, making an alliance with Egypt. That was a major blunder, and now he's paying for it. So there's embarrassment, there's shame. You know, the people are afraid. And so verse 1 begins this story. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So remember, he's, he's taken all the cities. And uh, they finally, they've made their headquarters in one of the nearby cities. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, which means it's like a general, like one of his, his uh, military leaders. So Sennacherib is in a nearby city. He sends his general from Lachish, that's the nearby city, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, um, which is where um, Israel had earlier made, where Jerusalem had earlier made a treaty with Assyria. That's the same exact spot. And we covered that like six months ago or whenever we got to it. But they had already made a treaty, which is a little ironic here because they're, remember, they're covenant breakers. And um, verse 3, And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. So Hezekiah sends out his, his ambassadors, his envoys. Got a, a secretary, got someone to write down what is said, and you got an administrator. So they send them out. And the Rabshaka, the general, says to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? So you can see how he's kind of like Satan right now. Like, why would you trust your God? What are you, what are you, what are you trusting in? He's going to make a, a political argument, and he's going to make a theological argument to try to get them to surrender. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? So why have you stopped paying taxes? Why have you rebelled? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. Yep, you're trusting in Egypt. That's what you've been doing. And remember, God told him for the last 35 chapters not to do that. And so now it's embarrassing that the ambassador, the general of the Assyrians, is coming to Jerusalem and saying, you shouldn't have trusted in Egypt. That's exactly what God has been saying. And uh, behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Basically saying, they're like a, a sharp staff that if you lean on it, it's going to jam through your hand, right? Not to be trusted. And that's true of any, uh, you don't make covenants with unbelievers. You don't make covenants and political alliances with evil people. <coughs> or else you're going to uh, lean on a, on a 
appointed staff, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. So that's his political argument. Don't need to be trusted in Egypt, surrender. Now it's theological argument. We trust in the Lord our God. That's Yahweh, by the way. Is it not he who, whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? So if there's a bunch of high places and altars everywhere and Hezekiah has removed them, is that something God's going to be mad at or happy with? God's going to be happy with that. This is a pagan. He doesn't understand Christianity. And he knows that Hezekiah has been a part of a revival that's been taking place in Jerusalem. And Hezekiah has gotten rid of all the, the pagan altars. And this pagan is saying, your God's going to be mad at you. You've been taking out all these pagan altars. You see what I'm saying? He said, uh, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Talking about there in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. Like, hey, surrender. Trust us. You know, your God's mad at you. Egypt's not going to help you. I will give you 2,000 horses. That's a lot. Just, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go on back. I'll, I'll grab 2,000 horses. That's nothing for us. If you're able to, on your part to set riders on them. If you even have enough men to ride those. That's an insult. If you have enough men to ride all the horses that I can muster in an afternoon. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? You couldn't even beat one brigade, much less all of the Assyrian army. When you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Here's another theological argument. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, is that true? Kind of true, but not in the way he means it. It's kind of interesting that he's like, God told me to come here and destroy all this. That's true, actually. Um, But uh, he didn't uh, say you were going to succeed on that last city, right? There's a, there's a trap set for, for this uh, evil stick that God's been beating Israel with. Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Hey, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. That was like the uh, court language, the sophisticated language of the elite in that day. For we understand it, and we can talk in Aramaic. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Like, we don't want the commoners to hear this discussion. This is, we're, in a, we're in a sticky situation here. It's very political. People are scared to death. The king has already botched it. With, he, he, just, he just told everyone, if we trust in Egypt, we're going to be good. And it stinks as a leader when you've, uh, your influence has gone down because you made a terrible decision. And, then it, and it takes a long time to get your influence back. And everyone's like, I don't know, maybe we need to start a committee. You know, once, once you make one bad decision, right? You know, maybe we need to trust it. You know, maybe we'll add some more people to the board and make sure we keep, you know, that under check. So it's always embarrassing as a leader when you make a bad decision. And Hezekiah's made a bad one. So it's a politically sticky situation. So it's, hey, we don't want everybody to hear this conversation, right? This is, you know, keep this behind closed doors. Verse 12, but the Rabshaka said, the general, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed? with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? They say, no, I'm going to talk to them too because they're going to be eating their own poop too. Um, It's a little gross, but he is a general in the Assyrian army. So, Um, And then verse 13. So then he stands up in the language of the people. 
the language of Canaan. You know, he knows how to talk uh, Christianese. He knows how church people think. And he's about to talk to you in church language. It's going to be very flowery, very uh, religious sounding. And he's going to make a very good theological point to try to get everyone to not trust Jesus. He's like a liberal. <laughs> then the Rabshaka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord surely will deliver us. So he's saying, don't let Hezekiah get you to make a stupid decision with his religion and his God talk. You know, you're doomed. This is, you need to surrender. This is very practical, right? Very pragmatic. I'm sure all the very wealthy businessmen in the church are, are kind of like, hey, Hezekiah, I, you know, I, sometimes we need a more balanced approach, right? Um, <laughs> sure, that's what's happening. Um, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. They're, you're not going to win. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat, his, eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern. Like, things are going to be great. You're not going to be killed, right? You're going to, you know, they're probably all starving, right? And very thirsty and desperate. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, I'm going to, where I bring you, it's going to be a lot like this place, land of milk and honey. It's going to be great. A land of grain and wine. Y'all listening? Three more minutes. We're almost done. A land of bread and vineyards. Sounds like the devil, right? It reminds me of Absalom at the gates as well. He's, you know, he's, he uh, tries to, he's a man of the people. He's a man of the people. Can't trust that Hezekiah guy. Beware lest Hezekiah misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? I think that's where he makes his mistake, right? That's where he steps in it. Because he's been making decent arguments and he's been trying to appeal, but then he he uh, involves God in the in the equation, and he's and he almost like double dog dares God. He says, well, "Have any of the gods been able to stop us yet?" Right, uh, and and we know what the answer is about to be, but they don't know what the answer is about to be. It's a tough situation to be in, right? Look at verse nineteen. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Saravaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all of the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Right? God's weak compared to the Assyrian God. And uh, I think that's where he steps in it. So we'll have to see next week what, um, what Hezekiah decides to do and what happens to them. All right, y'all have a good evening.